listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. i got to tell you something, people. My guest today, I met him back in 1998. I was living in San Diego, and my neighbor was Norman Carmichael. And it was the weekend that the Broncos played the Packers in a Super Bowl. And Norman invited my guest down, and I you know we ended up walking to this bar, this crappy bar that me and Norm ever went to because every other bar was swarmed. And you know, I, we became friends on Facebook recently, and I said, you know what, I'm going to invite this guy on the show because he is a, a great documentary. He made it a while back, but that's on Amazon that you got to check it out. And my guest is Rich Wilkes. How you doing, Rich? I'm doing fantastic, Steve. How you doing? I'm doing well. I, I got to tell you, I, I, I want to talk about this documentary. That's where I want to start because me and my wife don't watch any of the same TV shows, okay? And the only time I watch network TV is when she'll say, oh, Stephen, like, you know, Anthony Stark or Gregory Harrison or Paul Ben Victor are on. So I'll go and I'll watch them because they're friends. And I was flipping around and I, I, I watch all the music documentaries and you posted on Facebook, this punk like me, I had no idea what to expect. And it was a blast. I, I want to I talk about this. Where did the idea come from? And tell people what it's about. You know, uh, just briefly what it's about is uh, I got the opportunity to get a meeting with the guy who runs uh, the Warp Tour, Kevin Lyman, or ran the Warp Tour. Um, and I got my my uh, chance to sit down with him, and I told him I, I really want to write an article about the Warp Tour for Rolling Stone magazine, but I want to do it from the perspective of a band on the road. So would you put my band on the road so that I can write this thing? You know, and I, I used to do uh, band interviews and stuff back in the day before I moved to L.A. Um, so I told him about that and he was convinced and he said yes. Uh, so then I had to call Rolling Stone magazine. Who, I don't know anybody there. And so I called them and pitched them the idea and they shot me down. Uh, so I was still booked on the tour and I figured, you know, he's not going to know until uh, well afterwards whether or not there's an article. And he's probably forgot about it already. Uh, so basically, it was a lie to get on the Warp Tour with my bar band. Um, what happened was my my band broke up a month before the tour over differences of uh, you know what people what people's goal, goals were with this tour, and some guys that wanted to go and some didn't. So the band broke up. I was kind of bummed out. I still had the slot on the tour. Uh, and so two weeks before I decided to put together a new band and I just, you know, sent an email out to everybody who, who wants to take a couple weeks off work and go tour America uh, and we'll put together this band and we'll just see what happens. Uh, I had to move from drummer to lead singer because I couldn't find a singer. Uh, and then I had a weekend to write an album's worth of material. <laughs> and come up with a concept and the concept was a band called carne asada which is a punk rock mariachi band so i grew up in san diego and i have an affinity for for uh, uh mariachi music and my buddy luis lopez who is actually from tijuana uh he was in on guitar and so we decided to to go ahead and and give it that vibe and so the, the pitch for the band is sort of like what sublime did for reggae we did for uh, mariachi music we try to flatter ourselves but uh, you know the goal was to figure out something different because there's so many bands on this tour there's uh, 90 bands playing every day on 10 different stages how are you going to stick out from all of these 
pop punk bands and figured playing, you know, Cielito Lindo and uh, Guadalajara and uh, La Cucaracha would be a way to do that. So, uh, you know, we, we printed up some, some T-shirts and, and hit the road. Now, what's fascinating is, and, you know, you mentioned this in the movie, and you talk about, you know, being on the road. Now, I did comedy from the late 80s to early 90s. And, of course, I wasn't like you who had a big tour bus. I drove in my little metallic maroon Fiero with another comic. And we used to call it, you know, one booker called it the, um, we called it the satellite tour. Because you would drive from, like, Hagerstown, Maryland, like, 150 miles to another place, and then come right back to Hagerstown. And you'd be going, like, so far out of your way. But for you guys, what was it like when you, you I mean, you had the kick-ass tour bus. I mean, I'm sure other bands didn't have that kind of tour bus. Yeah, certainly not uh, baby bands like us or fake bands like us. Uh, they were traveling in, you know, we would see them out the windows of our air-conditioned bus and they'd be sleeping on the roof of their station wagon in the middle of a field. And it's brutal for those guys, but uh, but they they love it. Um, the backstory on me is I'm a, a screenwriter and I had a, a, right before the tour, I had a hit movie, uh, it was an action movie with Vin Diesel called Triple X. And that's what got me, you know, enough uh, cred, I guess, to go and meet with Kevin Lyman. And because, you know, I was 37 at the time, this was my version of rock and roll fantasy camp. So I wasn't going to cheap out on it. So I just went all in and I spent the money on this tour bus, which was, you know, they're, they're not cheap, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have that screenwriting job. And so I had that kind of, uh, money because it was before I had, um, all of my kids. Uh, so we just went for it and we brought along a film crew figuring maybe that's a way to recoup some of the, the money I'm spending on this thing. And, uh, it worked out. We went to South by Southwest with the movie. We won the San Francisco documentary, you know, festival. Uh, we had a good time. We've had good luck. Now, I know, I know your background screenwriting, you know, you're a kid from San Diego, I believe, you know, I know you Lou Norm, I think Oceanside, if I'm not, if I'm not wrong. Um, what were you like as a kid? I mean, you know, when you sit there, cause I know, I think, you played drums, and so you probably have an affinity towards uh, punk music, too, else you wouldn't have picked the Warp Tour. You know, what were you like as a kid? When did you know you wanted to get into the entertainment world? Because a lot of us are different. You know, a lot of us, people go, hey, you're funny, but, you know, you being close and me being growing up outside Philadelphia, it's attainable. But a lot of people aren't, it's never attainable. When did you know? Like, as a young kid, did you sit there? Were you a creative kid? Yeah, I was a creative kid, but but the movie business was a billion miles away. I grew up in New Jersey and then in Geneva, Switzerland, and then uh, moved to Oceanside in sixth grade. So I didn't know anybody in the business until I got to uh, college in Santa Cruz, where there were some kids from L.A., and one kid's father had a job. I don't know what he did, locations, or I don't know what he did, but he worked on MASH. And I thought that was incredible. Uh, and uh, it never occurred to me prior to that, that you could actually have a job in Hollywood. So based on my excitement for that, I looked into it and, and wound up trying to pursue it in college. And I would, in the summer times, go to L.A. and audition for game shows. And I'd be an extra in low-budget horror movies or TV shows, whatever I could get into. 
And that just made it more and more real. And it doesn't matter where you come from. If you're willing to work for free and spend long hours, um, you can you can figure out a way in, you know, at least into the orbit of people that are working in the in the business. So, you know, from early on, I was always writing short stories and things like that and in school plays, but I had no real intention of doing any. I was on the track to be some kind of engineer because my brothers are aerospace engineers and work on the space shuttle. And my dad launched some of the first satellites in the 50s. And that's sort of where I was on track to go, though I hated that world. I had no interest in mathematics or, or vector physics or anything like that. Uh, so when I got to college, I just put all my eggs in the writing basket, that and theater. It's funny, you know, you think back, we've all written screenplays if you lived in L.A., and it used to be, you know, you always get the Sid Field book, and then people yeah. go, oh, no, you got to get Will, William Goldman, Adventures in Screen Trade. But there was these things, and it was, you know, you've been around for a while. It was before there was really software. I mean, you know, people don't understand. It was to be like, I, I used to have one of those crappy brother word processors where it would go line to line, and you'd see it, but you'd only have, like, a little screen. When did you write your actual first screenplay, and did you like it? Because I always hear, you know, people write their first one, and they think, this is the best thing ever. Then they look at it a year later, two years later, and go, man, this really sucks. Yeah, I, uh, the advice that I would give anybody is after you finish the first one, immediately go on to the second one and forget about the first one, because you're not going to write a great screenplay your first time out. And I know people do, and that's why those stories are legendary, uh, but it's not going to happen to you. It certainly didn't happen to me. The first thing I got uh, interest on was my sixth screenplay, um, and I just kept cranking them out as fast as I could in order to, you know, get better at it. Uh, the, the, yeah, when I started, it was a dot matrix printer, you know, monochrome display, all that kind of thing, and you couldn't, you know, PDF your your file over to the to submit it to anyone. You had to go to Kinkos and print up dozens of copies, put them in envelopes, ship them off to agents and managers and whatnot. So yeah, it was pretty it was pretty archaic back in the day. But I lucked into uh, getting a career early in my in my twenties again by lying to the Disney Corporation the way I did uh, to the Warp Tour. That's how I got into screenwriting. What was your lie at the Disney? It was, they had a fellowship program that they were offering. Uh, this was back in like 1990. They wanted to get, uh, they wanted to, to have a uh, an outreach to multicultural writers. And so they had this uh, multicultural fellowship. So I wrote this letter to them and I said, listen, I'm, I'm not a minority. I'm not from a different culture, but I am from the counterculture of punk rock music. And would you consider my screenplay? Well, the letter amused them enough that they read the screenplay. They didn't <clears throat> consider me for the fellowship because, you know, that would have been, that would have been stupid. Uh, but they bought the fact that I was from, from the punk rock counterculture, which, you know, I've been to shows, but I'm certainly no, you know, punk rock expert. So based on that lie, they read the screenplay, Disney optioned it, uh, we almost got it made, and then it blew apart, and you know, a bunch of other scripts had to follow before I got something. But you know, people always wonder, how do you get in? 
you just have to make up your own way. I don't think anybody can help you get in unless you, you know, your parents are in the business. It's just lying and cheating and doing whatever the hell you can to be creative to, to get your shit on somebody's desk, I guess. Now, I believe, you know, if you go on IMDb, your first screenplay was Stoned Age, the Stoned Age, and then it was Airheads. Now, Airheads is one of those movies. It was when Brandon Fraser was popular. Where was Sandler in his career then? And how did you get that movie made? Because I think Sandler wasn't the Sandler yet. No, dude. They didn't, the studio didn't want Sandler. They wouldn't allow him to be uh, in the movie. They, uh, they had to be convinced, which was, you know, it's obviously a huge mistake on their part if they cut him out. But that was the, the you know, the, the joy of that process that getting that movie made was you know once we got Sandler involved um that led to all the other SNL guys and so we got Farley in the movie and David Spade was around and uh, uh some of the other guys so for me as just a fan of those dudes and it was when they were just the young guys on SNL I think the the top dogs were like Dana Carvey and uh and what uh Phil uh, Hartman and Folks like that. And these guys were the young upstarts they would put at the end of the show. So being there and getting to see them do stand up, getting to see Farley and Sandler on stage together, uh, you know, at a club, uh, you know, there was the improv in Santa Monica for a while. We go see Sandler down there. It was just fucking magical. You know, it was it was a dream come true to be in their orbit and then to get to work with, you know, these other guys, what really got it to work was, uh, the director, Michael Lehman, he, uh, he had done Heathers, which everybody loves. Uh, so it seemed perfect for him to do this comedy cause he loves music. Um, so he came in, got the, the ball rolling. And then somehow we got this miraculous cast where even in the small roles, we had Harold Ramis, uh, and like I said, Farley came in for, for several days and, uh, you know, between Ramis and, uh, and uh, Ernie, we had two of the Ghostbusters, two of the four Ghostbusters. So with a cast like that, everybody, you know, really wanted to be in it, all the, the, the comics. So we got Michael McKeon and it was just an insane cast, an insane experience. The, the movie wound up bombing, but it, it, uh, it does have an afterlife sort of as a, as a cable TV comedy people grew up with. Now, as a writer... What is it like, I mean, I don't know how long if the process is once you wrote the script, but as a writer and being pretty new, you must sit there and must get in your head that these comedy heavyweights are reading your words. Uh, yeah, but I was fairly cocky at the time. Um, you know, I think you have to be. You have to think your, your shit you're writing is good. So I was... Uh, I was, you know, desperate to have people like that read it and get their stamp of approval. Uh, and the director was totally fine with, you know, me not being rewritten. There was talk of the bringing in some comedy heavyweight to, to rewrite the dialogue or whatever. And they asked me, do you want that? And I said, no, I'm 28 years old, 27, whatever I was. Uh, fuck no, I'm cocky. I want, <laughs> I want the sole credit on this thing. So no, I wasn't, I wasn't intimidated by, by anybody. And, uh, I'm still not to this day, you know, whoever I get to meet, that's a big shot. The less impressed by them you are, I think the better, you know, they don't want to hear what a big fan you are and 
whatever. Just treat them like a normal asshole you'd meet at lunch. You know, it's just like when I met and hung out with you. I wouldn't treat Dr. Dre any different. I actually, I did work with Dr. Dre briefly and treated him like you know any other asshole. Now, how did you end up in Airheads? I know you have a line, because Norm, our neighbor's like, yeah, man, you know, Rich is the guy with the long hair who says something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Norm loved that. Uh, how, how did you end up in the movie? Did, did you write yourself a part? Because we always know, like, Scorsese shows up in his movies, and, you know, this. How did you end up, did you have to finagle your way in, or did you say, I want oh, my fucking strat, scat, side card, put me in there? Yeah, that's basically what it was. And I was such good friends with the director that he was like, great, it's one line. There's a sequence where we need four people. And we got Lemmy and Thetterin John, uh, myself, and then my friend Vinny DeRamis, who was my college roommate, who came in to audition. So it was such a ridiculously good experience on that movie, getting along with the director, uh, just having access to everything. I was on set whenever I wanted. I was in rehearsals, casting. I was in every day of casting, just meeting, you know, like Malcolm McDowell or whoever would come in to audition. Like these amazing actors would come in to audition and I just was able to soak it up. I've never had that experience since because directors aren't, you know, usually that interactive with the, with the, the writer that they would ask your opinion on. What do you think if we cast this dude? Now, that movie, as you said, it didn't do well in the box office, but it had a had, you know, good reputation. A lot of people was in it. How did that help your career out? Was it the old thing you got that done and people were saying, Well, was this such and such work with him and oh my god, look at all these people. We gotta we gotta get Rich Wilkes. How did that change your career? Uh, it gave me a career because before anybody knows that the movie's gonna bomb you know, it's a it's a year goes by when the cast you know gets announced and they start shooting and they're like, okay, this dude must know what he's doing. Let's get him in and and have him pitch on something. And it was back in the day when you could actually go in and pitch something, you know, a paragraph worth of material without even giving them the three acts. And they would go, great, let's let's see what you know. Go home and write the screenplay. Um, they stopped doing that because they decided why should we do that when we can just have the writers be at home and write spec scripts for us. Uh, and that's what they do now. But back in the day, it was like, uh, I don't know, it was like a boon time for writers. And so I was able to come in out of left field. And because of that one, you know, movie getting made, it led to a whole, you know, I've been doing it now for 30 years, which is a fuck of a long time to be, in the movie business, I, uh, you know, I'm shocked to this day that I still, I'm busier now than I've been in 10 years. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. So yeah, that cast of that movie, even though it wasn't the first movie I got made, I got with the stone age done first, the cast on that movie and the director and the hype behind it, it was extraordinary. Now, what's it like you're a young guy and back then, you know, everyone knows it's like TV writers and screenwriters made all the money. I mean, it's it's a given fact. What is it like when you're a guy who, you know, basically late in life, changed in college, and said, oh, I'm going to write. I don't want to do what my family did. What is it like when you get that first big check? I mean, did you go splurge? Did you buy a new car? I mean, did you change? Did you go from basically being broke to having money? No, I think I was very uh, 
you know, smart at the beginning, assuming that this could go away any minute, you know. So I, I saved for, for quite a few years. I, I At the time that we were making the movie, I was still driving a $500 car, uh, a 74 Volkswagen uh, Squareback, which was such a piece of shit. It was embarrassing to drive to the, uh, the studio lot every day to go, you know, watch the movie get made. So I bought a, a Saturn. Uh, remember Saturn? Classic American car. That was my dream car. So I bought the Saturn, and uh, I felt pretty pretty good about myself. So no, I didn't. I didn't splurge until much later for the tour bus on that stupid warp tour. Uh, because why the hell not? How often are you going to get the chance to go on tour? Now, the Jerky Boys. Did they hire you? Did they hire you to write that, or did you go in with a story? How did that work? Because they were known, and it's not like you're going. I'm sure you just didn't sit there one night and go, "Hey, what are you going to do tonight? I'm going to have a few beers, and then tomorrow I'm going to wake up and write a movie about the Jerky Boys." We're getting obscure here because I don't know if anybody in this decade knows the Jerk Boys, Jerky Boys, but they did come around in a very stupid way, which was they they asked me if I wanted to write. The Jerky Boys movie, and I knew the Jerky Boys, and I didn't see how you make a prank phone call into a movie, <laughs> so I said no. But my buddy uh, Jim Malconian, who directed The Stone Age, he took the job because they offered him to write and direct. But the deal that he got was you have to shoot it in February. No, you you're going to start writing in February, and it has to be in theaters by August. So he couldn't prep. He had to prep at the same time as writing the screenplay. So he called me up and said, would you help me out on this? So I went to New York. And while he was uh, spending his days location scouting and whatever, we would spend our nights writing the screenplay, which is the, you know, dumbest possible way to make a feature film. Uh, And as it turned out, you know, they didn't wind up releasing it that following uh, August. So we could have had another six months to work on it, but it was literally written in a week. You know, they said, Roger Birnbaum's coming on Saturday. You have to have a script for him. And it was Sunday. So we were cranking out, you know, 28, one day we did 28 pages. So we had to do a draft as fast as we could and then rewrite it. And then once Birnbaum said he you know it was acceptable it had to go straight to the production you know so they could find locations and build sets and it was ridiculous and i don't know if i don't think they make movies that way anymore but like i was saying it was a very very lucky time to get in because they did stupid things like that well you know it is it's crazy now now there's all remakes and then well you've noticed that with triple x but and not remakes but sequels yeah when you wrote that movie, because that movie just blew up. I mean, you know, I don't know. It, it was a while back, so I don't know where Vin Diesel was in his career, but I don't think he was that superstardom yet. And so when you got, did you get, did you pitch that idea? How did that process happen? And did you have any say in who would be Triple X? I mean, and, or did you have someone in your mind who you thought would be Triple X? Yeah. Well, prior to that, there was a transition for me working on comedies. I worked on, you know, uh, I did uncredited work on Billy Madison. So I was on the first two, you know, Sandler movies. 
and then I did, you know, uh, the Jerky Boys, and and I had written a bunch of other comedy scripts, and then I decided, all right, I have to make a switch to something else. Uh, so I tried the action thing, and I pitched that as, you know, it's the simplest pitch of all. It's like James Bond goes to Gestad and he skis and drinks martinis. Well, what about the guy who snowboards and drinks beer? Couldn't he be the spy guy? Uh, and it was such a ridiculously high concept at the time when X Games was just getting rolling that I was like, well, fuck, this is a, a no-brainer. And that was another one where I started writing the script in November. We were shooting by August, you know. Probably even, no, it was less than that. I think uh, I pitched it in March. We were shooting by November, however the math works out. And then when it came to Vin, uh, Fast Times hadn't come out yet, but the trailer had. And the trailer, you just knew it was going to be a kick-ass hit. So immediately once the script was done, they got the director of Fast and Vin Diesel to jump on board ours. And immediately after they, they wrapped that movie and put it in theaters, we started production. Uh, so I had nothing to do with the, the casting, but you couldn't have found a, a more exciting guy to cast in that moment, the, the moment before Vin Diesel breaks big with Fast and the Furious. And, you know, visually, it's the most intimidating, perfect, kick-ass kind of shaved head dude. Uh, and he was also, you know, a sweetheart. So, uh, again, that was another ridiculous miracle that came together uh you can't emphasize how much luck has to do with this stupid business, which, you know, you know that as well. You see people fly up the ranks and you see somebody who, you know, has a career that lasts 25 years like Keanu Reeves and then other guys from that same era that were just as huge don't have careers like that. I don't know why, you know, Keanu got, you know, a string of, good fortune and got cast in movies that went through the roof. Whereas the other guys got cast in movies that didn't hit for some reason. So I'm one of those, you know, lucky dudes who's managed to stick around. What is it like for you? You know, when you're, you're the lucky dude and then triple X is making a shitload of money. Do you keep your eyes on the box office? And are you thinking, cause you know, Hollywood sequel, baby sequel. And at least I'm going to get story credit. I created the characters. How does that work? How does it happen? If you're involved in a sequel, do you get first shot at writing that sequel or do they just, and you can pass on it, but or do you still make money off the character? No, I, I was hired to write the sequel. Um, but without telling me, they had hired another writer to also write a script for the sequel. So we were working on it simultaneously, both working with the director. And it was kind of a fucked up, you know, thing to do to not tell me there was another script. And since we were both working with the same director, it felt like we were cross-pollinating because there was things in his script that were in mine and things from my script that were in his, uh, you know, in general terms, not specifics. Um, so at the end of the day, they chose his script and I got the story by, but this is how stupid Hollywood relationships are. On the first one, I was a hero. When it came to the second one, I got characters created by credit, but they put it in the, in the end crawl. I was between the truck drivers and the catering people. <laughs> they stuck in story by, I didn't get the Bob Kane, you know, created by for Batman, they, they were mad at me at that point and, and stuck me back there. Uh, 
the the thing with triple x that was a disappointment was i went to the you know on friday when it opens you have a meeting with the marketing department and this guy comes up to me from marketing he's like you don't have no idea what's about to happen to you do you and i go what are you talking about so this movie is going to open north of 75 million and i was like holy shit that is unbelievable that was unheard of back then and it didn't it opened at 45 million and so it was perceived as a huge disappointment because word had gotten around the studio had been bragging that it was going to be 75 and it was 45 so uh it wound up making a shit ton of money uh in the long run and overseas but you know you'd think that it was like let's count the money as it comes in and boy my career is taking off and instead it was perceived as a as a letdown which was kind of a which was shocking to me because they went ahead and made a sequel and still it was it was hard for me to get uh a bunch of jobs after that it's it's so crazy like that it's so fickle now you've also directed though you directed uh the movie you wrote how, how did that come about is that something like like a, a, a passion project you had like when you did punk like me or you know and, and that was a very good cast in in, in glory days Oh, God, yeah. Uh, it's a movie called Glory Days. It was an independent. We shot for, you know, under a million. <laughs> the lead was Ben Affleck. It was his first starring role. Uh, the co-lead was uh, Sam Rockwell. And then Brendan Fraser came and did a cameo, and Matthew McConaughey, and Alyssa Milano was in it. Uh, Spalding Gray. It was, you know, John Rhys-Davies from, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was a phenomenal cast, but that also was in that dumb period where they figure if you got, you know, a movie made, you must know what the fuck you're doing. And I, I, in the first two years of my career, how many movies? It was like I got, I want to say three or four movies made, uh, you know, or greenlit anyway. And I had a ton of of, uh, writing jobs. And, um, they just assumed then that I would make a good director. Uh, and my agent at the time, Chris Moore said, I'm going to quit being an agent and I want to be a producer. So why don't you direct this script that you wrote? I had never thought about it. And he said, I'll find the money you direct it because I believe in you. And I was like, well, fuck yeah, I'll take a shot. And it was back in the day when you could, you know, get $700,000 for, putting together some crazy independent movie. This is at the time, you know, Linklater and Tarantino and Soderbergh, and they were always looking for the next big, you know, indie guy. And I, you know, was fortunate enough to fall into that that scene as well, though with, with less success. Now, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you, you'd still... Now, you know, you said after Triple X, you thought you were going to get all these jobs up to the sequel. What happens, and as a writer... How do you deal with that? Because it's like anything, you know, I mean, I did comedy for a long time. When you, when you had a shitty set, you know what, you'd have, you had the 11 o'clock show, you know, you, you can redeem yourself, you know, or, you know, you, you have a, a week of shows. So you have 10 shows. So you, you take a crap on the fifth, the fifth show and, and it's hard, but you know, you can come back and redeem yourself right away because you know, you're good or she wouldn't be booked. When you say, you know, after, after, you know, there was a, a, Failed, not a fail wasn't a success because it only made forty five million, which is still a great opening. Back then, you it, it, did it sour the town on you, and then how did you keep with it? Because it must you're still a young guy at that point, right? What happened was I I got a, a decent sized uh, job after that. I was going to do the Castle Wolfenstein movie based on the video game, 
So I spent a year, year and a half on that, and it wound up not getting made. And in the meantime, Triple X2 had come out and it had stiffed so badly, you know, it grossed like 25, south of 25 million total in its box office run. So that was also a factor. And it, in fact, after Triple X, it took me 17 years to get another movie made, which is a dry spell like no other. You know, I had really good luck in the first decade of my career and then 17 years without getting a movie made, but I stayed employable somehow because I wrote a string of movies that almost got made and, you know, they made good uh, writing samples, I guess. Now, were you, getting, were, you, were you getting paid for those movies? Yeah, but it was the kind of movie, you know, what I really wanted to do after Triple X was not do a bunch of more action. So I went after the Motley Crue biopic, The Dirt, based on their book. And I got hired on that in 2002. But the deal is, you know, if you're going to do a movie like that, though, you know, if you're going to write another action movie, they'll pay you six figures. Uh, when you write The Dirt, they're going to pay you 50 grand and it'll take you a year and a half, two years to, to complete the process. But that's the price you pay for doing, you know, something that you think is interesting. So I really wanted to make the transition to that. And that's what I was concentrating on, those kinds of movies. And none of them got made. But Early on, I mean, starting back in 04, the first draft of The Dirt, David Fincher wanted to make it. And so we went down the road with Fincher, and then eventually the, the script, you know, the whole project blew up, and it took, you know, like I said, 17 years for it to finally get made. But the cred of having, you know, Fincher attached and almost directing the movie helped me out. So I was able to write a string of, you know, uh, low-paying artistic movies that didn't get made for the next 15 years. Now, what is that? Is I mean, as a writer, and, you know, money aside, is that more, was that more invigorating to you? Was it something that, you know, I mean, you know, if you're, you're going to do your creativity, an action movie, you know, you're going to get the big bucks, but then again, you're sitting there going, after a while, you're probably like, oh, Jesus, a fucking other action movie. You know, it's like, I don't want to write this. I I, I wasn't, born to write this i mean what was your psyche as you were writing these projects were you were you happy yeah that was i was ecstatic doing those kinds of movies and i love the action movies but it was sort of like tom hanks wanting to graduate from silly comedies to becoming you know jimmy stewart of his era and it takes a lot of you know balls to make that switch and some people you know, most people can't make it. And so I figured every time, you know, if I got a hit action movie, great, that's my time to, to, to pull off something like The Dirt that'll put me into a different, you know, group of movies. Um, but I was still, every other script I was writing was a big action thing that also didn't wind up getting made. Uh, so I wrote a movie early on for, for Marvel, uh, which was... Uh, uh, what was it called? They want to make it as a TV show, Iron Fist. I wrote a version of Iron Fist right after they made the first Iron Man. Um, and then I worked on the Kung Fu movie uh, for Legendary. 
which was also had a director attached and it came close, but then it blew apart. And I guess now they're doing it as a TV show. So I was still managing to get on those big projects every, you know, two, three, four years. Um, but most of the time it was these meager paying, really awesome projects that unfortunately we never could get made. Now you said you went after the dirt. Was that was there was was there no interest? And you read the I read the book. It was a great book. I love Crew. I, I mean, I, I you know I'm one of those people. I sit there whenever I get you know a metal musician. You know, I just I was talking to Chips enough one night. I was like, well, enough's enough, you know. And then you get to know people, and it's like it's just cool because you know when you listen to that music, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my god, I'm talking to you know. It was great. So you said, were you the was no one in the making that book at the beginning and did you decide to go after it or how did the, how did you get connected to the dirt? I don't remember uh, how I first heard about it, but the, the advantage of having, it was right when triple X, you know, was, uh, it was right before the movie came out when everyone thought I was going to make 75 million. So I was kind of, you know, uh, a big deal in that month. And so when I heard about the Motley crew thing, and they said, really, you're going to you're willing to write this for, you know, this amount of money. Great. You're hired. They were very excited to to get me at that moment. And, you know, uh, so it wasn't difficult to get because they just figured, wow, we're getting, you know, an action movie writer to write this thing. He must know what he's doing. God knows the logic on that. But it worked to my advantage. <clears throat> and it was the, you know, getting to go, you know, I insisted even though the book is fantastic and you don't need any more information i insisted that i you know had to get together with nikki and tommy and go to their house and and interview them and hang out uh and go to you know events that they were hosting and shit it was just magical you know it was like my 16 year old self couldn't believe that i was hanging out with nikki and that he knew my name and uh in fact, that's the irony was I, I finally saw him again at the premiere of uh, The Dirt 17 years later, and he had no idea who I was. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my uh, you know, you always dream that, you know, you work on something with somebody famous and you're going to become buddies and hang out. And yeah, me and my pal Nikki are going to go to Cabo or some shit. And so far it hasn't worked out. I've worked with a lot of a lot of cool, you know, uh, you know, like Sandler and, and Vin Diesel. And I still haven't been invited to their to their ranch in Montana or whatever. Now, you, Fincher was Fincher was attached to it. Why did it keep falling apart? Because, I mean, it already came out a few years ago because I had heard about it because like anything, you know, when you read the book and you follow that stuff, you're like, oh, you know, because they always say. It's gonna be a gonna be a motion gonna be a picture gonna be a motion movie. And you sit there and go after like ten years. And what when's this when's this gonna be a motion picture? How did it get backtracked? Because as you said, it's a long time, and it came out in what two thousand nineteen. I mean, what was the whole process? You know, in in hindsight, the the decisions were so stupid. Like when Fincher was gonna do it, I think the he, the budget he wanted was something like forty million. And they were like, 40 million, that's ridiculous. And it's David Fincher, you know. How, how do you say no to, to him? And the concept we were going with was, why don't we do two cuts of the movie for theaters? One is the R-rated cut, and one is the NC-17 cut. 
and how awesome that would be. You can't advertise an NC-17 movie in newspapers uh, back then. So the idea would be you can see the normal R-rated or you can go across town to see the NC-17. And we're really going to go for it with the, you know, the crass sexual stuff. So it was going to be, you know, Fight Club meets rock and roll. Well, uh, MTV Films uh, wimped out on it and didn't want to spend whatever it was on a David Fincher movie, which in retrospect, I'm sure they regret. So after David fell out, uh, it was uh, Larry Charles from Borat, and he was going to do it. So I worked with him for several years at several different studios writing two or three drafts. And again, even after Borat, they didn't want to spend X amount of money on this movie with Motley Crue that nobody's going to want to go see because who gives a shit about Motley Crue anymore? So I left the project in 2008, completely lost track of it until, uh, you know, I got a phone call that they were going to make it. And it was completely out of the blue because I didn't even know that, that it was close. Uh, and I finally got invited, you know, to meet the, the director and he was tremendous and got to go to the set and, and, you know, meet Machine Gun Kelly and the guys in the band who are all phenomenal. Um, but who knows, man, how something comes together or doesn't. It's completely baffling to me. The other guys I had a project with, this is how stupid the industry is. I had a project for a long time, this dream project with the Russo brothers. And the Russo brothers, 10 years ago, could not get arrested. It was like 2009, I guess, that we had this script. And they couldn't raise, you know, a couple of million bucks, whatever it was, to make this indie movie that would have been phenomenal. And then now you couldn't get them to direct the movie for, you know, less than $20 million, whatever, whatever big-time directors get paid. I don't know. But there's these guys, you know, it's just in retrospect, it's like, how could you not get a Russo Brothers movie made for that that budget? And it's just, it's so frustrating sometimes. Because uh, now everybody wants them. And everybody wants Fincher. Uh, and everyone wants Sandler. But you're fighting that battle every time, and it's dumb luck. How different is the script for the dirt that you wrote that was supposed to be shot in your guys' you know, two different versions that you wanted it. How different was it now? And, and this sounds weird, but, you know, cause it is still rock and roll, but you know, there's going to be people that are going to watch the dirt and bitch like say, Oh yeah, they're misogynistic. Duh, 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 you know, and things change. And of course it's like, well, guess what? That's what heavy metal was. Read any of these books, you know, guys putting their dick yeah. in a burrito to go sleep with someone else. I mean, that's the way life was back then. How, how different did your script change? And did you have to actually t- tone it down a little bit because of what people are so nervous about that will happen? Well, a- another writer was brought in and she was amazing. Um, so I had nothing to do with the Netflix version of the movie. They just took my early script from 2004, the Fincher one, and she uh, rewrote it. And what happened was if you went on even a page count, half the script was hers and half was mine. They, they literally had my same scenes from 2002 in the 2019 movie. 
Uh, and then the other half of the movie was hers and their big, you know, what they wanted to do, Netflix and I guess the, the whole production team was to make the guys in the band uh, likable and understandable and sympathetic despite the fact that they were these, you know, incredibly misogynistic assholes who did whatever the fuck they wanted. Whereas in my version, I didn't care if you liked them at all. I was happy if you hated them at the end. And I think so was Fincher. Uh, it was very good fellas, like unapologetic, take it or leave it kind of attitude. I did, you know, there's, there's emotional scenes in the movie now that work fantastic and you know i wouldn't you know it, it the movie came out great but it's it's different in the sense that I, I did not want to soften them up or emphasize their nice side because they're very craven greedy selfish addicts and why the hell not put that out there because the book is so fucking honest they admit they cop to everything uh and and they are hard to feel sorry for <laughs> in the course of the book so i didn't see any need to try to make a movie audience uh, uh like them or make them sympathetic you know so it's a different it's a it's a different tone it's a different the story's the same it begins and ends at the same place with a lot of the same scenes but uh there's where you you felt more emotionally attached to the guys, I guess. Now I saw your post on Facebook. When did you do shots of Jaeger with Tommy Lee? And what happened there? Yeah, that was the that was when I went to interview him um, uh, for the movie, and it was at his Malibu house where he lived with uh, Pam Anderson. But they had just split up, um, and so you know the the story over there was that he had a piano and there was a swing over the the piano and she would be on the swing naked while he wrote songs on the piano so i got to see the swing set over the piano which was which was kind of a thrill but right before i met with him she came out and accused him of uh giving her hep c uh and she said i only have five years to live tommy lee gave me hep c so then I go meet with him and, you know, he has a, a movie room where it's just a harem sort of thing. It's just one giant couch. Uh, the floor is just one giant couch cushion, purple <laughs> velvet. And so we go in there to hang out and, you know, I'm just imagining what it would look like with a black light in there <laughs> to see all the, God only knows what happened in there. But I was sort of on this paranoid alert because of the hep C. So uh, I was saying goodbye to him, you know, it was like a noon meeting and he said, why don't you, you know, you want to do a, a shot of Jaeger for the road? And I'm like, well, fuck yeah. My 16 year old self would, you know, kick my ass if I, if I said no. <laughs> so we did a shot and then he said, let's do another. And he took the glasses and turned his back to me and filled them up again. And then when he slapped him back on the counter, it was the scene from Princess Bride where I did not know which glass was mine, which one had the poison in it, which one had the hep C in it. So uh, I just picked one and did the shot and, you know, had this wonderful time with Tommy, which I'm sure he does not remember, uh, not because he was wasted, but because just one of 10 zillion Jaeger shots with somebody at 11 in the morning that he's probably done. And, uh, you know, I, I drove home and from the car, called my doctor and made an appointment to go get 
tested for hep C. <laughs> so, so that parts of me didn't start falling off. So now, you know, I would check on your crew every once in a while because I met you through Norm. And I know, you know, you'll see the IMDb. And I know for a while, I don't know, IMDb, you never know if it's true or not. But it seemed like you were attached to a Kinison strip script. Yeah, I still am. That was another one that we were going to do with uh, Larry Charles, and that fell apart. Um, and we've been chasing, you know, trying to put the package together for uh, 13 years now. The producer's been on it since the mid-90s when Howard Stern was executive producer of the book. I don't know if you remember that, but, you know, he was a big uh, uh, Sam Kinison guy. So, so Stern was a, a executive producing uh, and it's just, it takes fucking forever. The producer was cold at the time and I was cold at the time. Uh, but now the producer got hot and had a movie nominated for Academy Award. He did uh, Hacksaw Ridge. And so now it was possible to get the financing, but you have to find, you know, what bankable actor is going to play Sam Kinison. He's, he's a unique look. You're not going to put, you know, a, a padding underneath the guy's jacket and pull it off. You need a big guy who's a movie star, or at least you did, you know, a couple of, you know, over the last 12 years you did. Now I think they're a little, little more lenient with that because you have a lot of movies coming out without big names. But it's still around. It's still, you know, a dream project. Did you ever meet him? I never met Kennison. I met Hicks. Um, and I met, I met, actually, I interviewed for my show, uh, Carl LeBove and the late Mitchell Waters. Mitchell just passed away uh, a few weeks ago. And, and Mitchell knew, owed everybody money. I remember I performed at the uh, comic strip in Fort Lauderdale, and I had a cold. Now, not given that, you know, it wasn't insane. It was the 80s, and the comic strip, you know, whatever. But I went into the bathroom, and Mitchell didn't talk to me all week. Like he, we all stayed in a comedy condo. He had a hotel room. And I remember going into the bathroom, and I blow my nose and out of another stall. Well, you're not even going to share with me, Cooper. And I'm like, dude, I'm just blowing my nose. But then also I'm friends with Jimmy Schubert, who uh, ran with Kennison somewhat. But um, I never met him. But who would you who would you vision envision if you made that movie this year or next year? Who would you personally want to see play Kennison? The, the guy who, you know, well, I don't know if I can say. No, I can't say I love everybody who, who, uh, who's even considering it. You know what I'm saying? That this is sort of right territory where I don't want to express a preference for one and then have that person not want to do it or fall out. Exactly. Uh, so uh, uh, I love everyone. That's the, the standard Hollywood bullshit answer. Now, what's in your future? What are you working on right now? Did the dirt give you some uh, yeah. kick your cred up again? Yeah, I, I, I have two movies uh, going now, uh, one of which I can't talk about. A lot of stuff is NDAs now. Uh, you can't talk about the project. So the one I can't talk about, but it's a it, – they're both biopics. One uh, is, is based on somebody that you would know immediately if I said their name. The other one is a, is a guy you know by reputation, but probably not the name. Um, you remember – uh, Don Simpson from Simpson and Bruckheimer. Yes. So we're, we're working on something uh, uh, about him based on a book written about him. Uh, and I probably shouldn't have mentioned that too because of NDA, but, uh, oh well, but, but on the fun side, you know, and I wanted to ask you about this kind of shit. I, I started stand up doing up comedy uh, a year before COVID hit. 
And so, you know, I was doing open mics and, and trying to write material and how the hell did you do it? It's so freaking hard. Well, you know, I, I can't explain it. I, did, I started when I got out of college and I was lucky where it was, the boom was ending, but there was somewhat of a boom. And I got lucky because in Philadelphia, there was a guy that had like 11 or 10 clubs and I was working the clubs in Philly, just busting my ass. And then some act, I worked a door at one of the clubs and I would do weekend spots. And one of the acts was a very Grover Socox, very popular comic in Philadelphia. Nicest guy, great friends with Harry Anderson back then. Grover took me on a gig for this booker and the booker then said, oh, Grover said you did great. Gave me 35 weeks of work. Now given it was weekends, and but still it was like 200 bucks a weekend, but you know, you're a comic. So my comedy got so good. I got tired of it. I, I got tired of the road. You know, I occasionally do it. It's funny. I know a guy who I met when I used to come back to visit my wife and I would book myself at clubs just to have fun. And he books this one like pizza place. It gets a good crowd. And he's like, you want to, you want a headline? I said, sure. So I'm going on stage and I got to do 40, 45 minutes. Well, I've done maybe a 30 minute set and a 15 minute set in a whole year. And so <laughs> it's something that, well, for me, cause I mean, you got to figure I was doing 250, 300 shows a year for six years. So it doesn't leave your blood just like you when you write. And there's a difference when you would go out on the road and you would have a half an hour, even though you'd book yourself, you only had 20 minutes, you had to make it work and you would write and no one gave a shit. You're not going to get canceled from a guy, Keith Gisser gig in Huntington, West Virginia. You know, no one cares. So it, it was fun. I mean, for me, you know, it's fun. I may... A lot of times people are like, why don't you do it more? Wherever you get on stage, you do well. Uh, see, for me, I'd rather just chill on a Saturday night and drink a few beers instead of driving an hour. I don't, you know, but keep doing it. And hopefully it will come back and uh, it's good, you know, so keep it up. The, the, the part that I can't get over is the silence. And when I'm doing my thing, if there's not a laugh, then I immediately go into the next bit and I wind up rambling straight through the whole open mic I just do open mics um, but I've I've been told that that you have to learn to enjoy the silence yeah you that's the thing I always worried about the silence and then I you know it's after you've done it for a while you know that hey man if you go on stage and you do a 30 minute set and you get laughs 26 minutes of it no one's gonna be pissed off at you now the performer and the the artist inside us gets frustrated i mean i used to get pissed because i'd be like that joke is funny you know like fuck you guys that that's funny and but you have to get over that and and you know and you and after a while you do enjoy the silence so you'll be fine yeah i started to, uh you know in my head i started doing a five count to try to have you know a pause between you know because sometimes you get a delayed reaction where somebody will chuckle two seconds after you finish the the joke uh and i'd already be on to the next one so I started counting to five in my head, uh, and that was starting to work for me. And then COVID hit. It, it, you'll you'll have to get. Believe me, I've talked to so many acts who have not who've been doing comedy for thirty years, and they're like, "Oh my god, we forget our act." Just keep doing it; you'll be fine. I got one more final question for you. In your career, how has your if it has has your writing style changed at all? Um, it's gotten better, <laughs> I hope. Uh, this, it's so interesting. I, I, uh, you know, and it just sounds like a 
name dropping, but I wound up working with Fincher after the dirt. I worked with him for, you know, eight years or so. And that was like going to film school. You know, it was completely, I'd give him a script and I'd know, you know, he'd go this thing on page 72 is that scene is bullshit. And I go, God damn it. That was the one that I faked my way through and he fucking saw it. And it caused me to rethink everything I was doing, um, trying to make things more succinct. Uh, the, the biggest challenge to me as a mature adult is trying to be emotionally honest and to put myself in the scripts, which I've never done before. It's always been about other characters, but there has to be a way, even with a Marvel movie, to put your own personality, your own fears, your own you know, loves into the mouth of some fictitious character. And I've always been scared of that. The honesty part is what makes a great writer a great writer or a great performer a great performer. And that is the single hardest thing to do. And it's why I, I picked up uh, stand-up because I figured, you know, you're fucking all by yourself up there. You're, you know, talking about your family, your kids, your whatever, completely naked and exposed. And that's, you know, the kind of comedians that I love do that kind of thing. And I was trying to get to that to be able to force that into my writing. Because even after, you know, writing for 35, 40 years, whatever it is, I'm totally struggling with with being honest. Are you an honest comedian? Or are you a joke comedian? Um, I became honest later, but I never really got into honest as much because everyone always said I was a really, really strong joke writer. So once again, you get used to getting the laugh. You get that crutch. You know, when you hear that crutch, man, when you're killing, when you're just killing. But then now as I've done it, you know, I was doing the show for my buddy. I just went in a whole story. I'm not going to go into it, but uh, how I, you know, because I had a heart condition and it affected me and I, I had to get Viagra and Viagra is expensive. So I went on this tangent about getting Indian Viagra through a website and and the bit was great, but the crowd was just looking at me, and I was like, I sat there, I just kept going. I was like, the hell with it, because I had done 20 minutes they love. I said, if I, if I lull for five, I tell a Viagra story, you know. So that's, that's it's, it's as you, you develop, it's like anything. You change, and, you know, I've never been able to be as honest as I want, but I, then again, is I'm not, I'm not into stand-up like I used to be. Yeah. I mean, the trick, obviously, is to make it intensely personal and honest and hilarious at the same time, the way that Chris Rock or, or whoever does. You know, those are the guys. I mean, Kinnison was incredibly honest and vulnerable, even though he was brash and loud and obnoxious, which is what made him fascinating to me. So, yeah, that's what I'm working on. All right, well, you're good. It's good. It's good to talk to you. Hey, people, now, if you have Amazon, I'm telling you, go watch Punk Like Me. I really enjoyed it. And I watch all these cool, I love music documentaries. And, and you know, you just, you, you'll, you'll get a message from it, you know, where it's, you just watch it. And, you know, if you don't, uh, whatever. But uh, are you on, are you on Twitter? Do you do any of that stuff? Uh, I do Instagram and Facebook. Uh, but, yes, uh, Punk Like Me is on Amazon Prime. You can watch it for free if you have Prime. It's only 82 minutes long, not that big of an investment. And if you don't, you know, if you're not interested, just click on it and let it play while you do laundry <laughs> so we can get the views and, uh, and get on Amazon's radar. So people, go check it out. Go to IMDb, check out Rich Wilkes. Uh, 
look up his stuff, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 840 episodes there. Email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. Twitter's at coopertalk. Instagram's at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.